Today's guest is Tony Cullis. Tony is a keynote speaker, host of the Leading Women in Tech podcast, career strategist, and leadership coach for women in tech. Tony has experience as a leader in the tech industry and is here to give us her perspective on how female leaders can thrive. What's the benefit of having women in tech? How does being a woman impact workplace attitudes and behaviors towards someone? What key skills do you need to become a leader at executive level? We'll discuss this and much more on the Coffee with Recruiter podcast. And we should be recording now and we can start now, I suppose. Hi, Tony. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Excellent. Great to great to hear. Well, I've been really looking forward to this discussion with you because it's something as a, as a recruiter, at least, it's something I'm super interested in when it comes to, um, I suppose, uh, engaging with uh, female professionals, primarily in the tech space, also as a tech recruiter, it's an area of, of interest to me. But also, I think, you know, we've all sort of noticed how when it comes to uh, leaders and people in leadership positions, it's it's overwhelmingly male, right? And and uh, we've always been asking ourselves, why is that and what can we do about it? And and um, and also uh, from a female perspective, what, what it's like and and what are the problems we need to solve and how we need to solve them? And, and maybe as a man, how can we contribute to those solutions? So thank you so much for taking the time for this call. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. I'm delighted to share on a topic that I'm incredibly passionate about. And I've actually built my entire business around um, with the audience here today because yeah, we need more female leaders, which I know we're going to get to why we need more female leaders. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, before going into the the more technical stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do? So I'm an executive leadership and success coach, which is a fancy way of saying I help coach predominantly women um, in the tech space because it's the area I specialize in into executive positions and help them really thrive while they're there, become better leaders, better people managers alongside their technical capabilities. Personally, I'm on a mission to get more women into senior leadership in the technology sector. Technology is now obviously pervasive everywhere. It is in, uh, of course, almost every sector technology impacts. So when I say tech, I would argue that that applies to everything. You get health tech, you get fintech, you get everything we do. Just recording this podcast requires technology, right? So I believe that I know actually that when we get more diversity at that senior level and actually across the entire spectrum, all the way from entry level, when we get more diversity of thought, we have better outcomes. And as technology is so pervasive, that is better for the human race. It's better for the planet. It's better for all users. It, it makes sure that we're really taking account of what the entire human race needs. Um, and so I'm on a mission to level the playing field because there are so many barriers to women and other under and uh, <laughs> other underrepresented groups that mean that we we have to work harder to get there. There is it's well known that to be, get ahead as a woman in the current workforce, you have to be better qualified. That is still the case, and it's very sad, but it's also very true. And that's not just down to men, by the way, like I, I will get into that later, but it's about how the whole of society interacts with women and for the barriers that we put up for women are much greater. I've had a passion about facilitating 
um, the use of technology from the very earliest point in my career. I started using technology when I was studying as a physicist. And I realized that the advancement of the human race really quite requires technology. Like if we are to solve any of the problems we're currently facing from health to climate change, technology has to be part of the solution. And I, that meant that I was working from day one in my career, like enabling the use of technology. And I realized that it wasn't just about making it easier to use the technology I was talking about, which at that point was supercomputers. It was also about realizing that there were other barriers to participation. And the big one that personally impacted me was being a woman. <laughs> and that passion has stayed with me. And at various points in my career, I've got very frustrated at the lack of representation of women and it culminated in setting up a charity called Women in High Performance Computing that's international, operates across over 70 countries to address the lack of women in the high performance computing and supercomputing industry. And that's what really set me on my path to today working with ambitious executive women, because I realized that my superpower, as it were, is to mentor and coach those women so that they can break through that glass ceiling. And more important than that, once they break through that glass ceiling, reach down and help the people up behind them who don't have the power to reach through that glass ceiling themselves. And so that's like my entire mission statement. It's something I'm incredibly passionate about, as you can probably tell. I could talk about it all day. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what I really like about what you do is that on the one hand, a lot of companies and maybe a lot of, I suppose, professional um, thought leaders, they focus or talk about very structural solutions to the lack of uh, female representation and maybe leadership or or other areas, right? Like things, you know, setting diversity quotas or or just stimulating hiring a bit more on that side or relying more on recruiters or or just hiring managers to look, just solve the problem by hiring more women, right? But I like that what you do is also you take a look at the individual and help these individuals, right, to develop the right skills to break through the glass ceiling, as it were. Yeah, we definitely need that holistic overview. I mean, I've worked at every point of all of the stuff you've just said. And obviously, now I work on the individual, work with the individual, I should say, not work on them. They're already amazing. <laughs> um, but I've also been actively involved in improving the recruitment pipeline, uh, all of that sort of stuff. And the thing I've learned is there is no one thing that's broken. The entire system is broken. There's a lot of work, amazing work being done trying to get girls to do more STEM, right? More science, technology, engineering, math at school. And a lot of money is piled into that. And I think it's amazing. But that only fixes one tiny part of the problem. When you realize that 51% of women leave the technology space by the midpoint in their careers compared to only 17% of men, it is insufficient to fix what's going on at high school. You have to be looking at the entire holistic overview. I'm working on one piece of that. I'm working on the piece that gets women more visible, means that they get heard, which changes our unconscious um, stereotypes, changes behaviors, everybody becomes more accepting, we get better leadership as a result because you have to, I know we're gonna dig into all that sort of stuff as well, but you can't fix just one piece of the puzzle. And anybody that tells you that, doesn't understand the real challenges going on but equally saying I can't do anything because it's too complex isn't isn't the answer either we all have a part to play we've all got to pick our battle we've all got to pick the part that we can influence 
And I believe we all have a duty to influence the bit that we can, but realize that that's not sufficient and that we have to do more. Well, just to, I suppose, to play devil's advocate and, and to start with the first question that I wanted to ask you, what a lot of, uh, you know, at least for, from, you know, talking to some hiring managers or sometimes just reading about this, this material, a lot of people, what they say is that, look, obviously we're not going to debate that we we sort of need to to have more women in the workplace or more women in leadership. But what we should focus on is on hiring the best person, not necessarily the most sort of diverse person, I suppose. So I suppose the first question is, what would be the the benefit of having women in, in tech or women in leadership positions in tech, right? Because I think we're missing part of the the puzzle and not just um, stimulating the hiring or, or women in tech leadership role positions because it's the sort of good moral thing to do but Mm. it's kind of also there's also a business element to this there's all kinds of arguments right so what would be sort of the argument for that yeah there's a really good point that you brought up there um because you're right i've heard this many times we just need to hire the best i've had people who are advocating for you know we know we need more diversity but we're not biased because we just hire the best and I'm like your problem there is our definition of best but before I address that let's come back to like the benefits there is this term called the diversity dividend which is basically decades of research by organizational scientists psychologists sociologists economics the whole lot tells you that socially diverse groups and that is those with the diversity of race ethnicity gender sexual orientation any diverse characteristic those diverse groups are more innovative than any homogenous group because we have a diversity of experience when everybody in the same group is homogenous they are necessarily thinking the same way they have the same lived experience they have the same views They therefore have the same ideas. When you get diversity, true diversity, which means inclusive diversity, when all the opinions are heard, you get improved ideation, you get improved team IQ, and team IQ always outperforms individual IQ, by the way, better problem solving, you avoid mistakes before they happen, you are better able to see new opportunities, you improve things like retention of your workforce, which given that it costs between 50 and 150% of the cost of a full-time equivalent to replace someone because of the cost, not only of the recruitment, but onboarding and training and all that, retention is a biggie, right? (laughs) So all of these things are your diverse dividend. It's things like, um, there's been so many studies done, a particular one that stands out is McKinsey and Company um, did a study on when you have greater gender diversity in your senior executive team. For every 10% increase in gender diversity, earnings before interest and taxes rose by 3.5%. If you're a billion dollar company or even a million dollar company, 3.5% is a big deal simply for looking at the diversity of your team. That's it. (laughs) There are many other um, studies out there. Another one that stands out is um, a study done by Columbia University which looked at um, the top firms in the Standard & Poor's Composite 1500 list, which found that female representation in top management leads to an increase of 42 million in firm value. It's like, this is no longer a nice to have. This is like necessary to have, right? When we look at it like that, this isn't 
about like, well, I just hire the best is looking at your definition of best, because I can pretty much guarantee you if you're just hiring white men, apologies to the white men, there's nothing wrong with you, but (laughs) I'm married to a white man. (laughs) If you're just hiring white men, your definition of best and talent is insufficient. And it's not surprising because we are blinkered as humans, right? Everything about us tells us to want more of what we perceive. So one of the reasons it's so hard to get more women into leadership is because we don't currently see women in leadership. One of the reasons it's so hard to get more people of color excelling in in what's called white collar, which has its own set of issues as a name, right? But the white collar workforce is because we don't see enough of it. And so our experience, our lived experience has built these stereotypes, which our brains then say, that person is not as well qualified as this white person in front of me, as this white man in front of me. And all of us do this, by the way, right? As a woman, I am biased against women because society, my lived experience has told me that women are not as qualified and that's why they're not leaders. So I'm not blaming any individuals here. What I'm saying is that your definition of best is necessarily biased and that's what we need to be addressing. Believe the data that says that when you get more diversity, it's going to be better. And then look at your definition of what is best and higher based on a better definition. Well, yeah, and a lot of these definitions of, of leadership, um, I suppose they would say things like, oh, you need to be assertive, you need to be aggressive, you need to be someone that's very imposing, that that is maybe less attuned to building consensus and understanding others' grievances, but really pushing your ideas through, right? And that, I suppose, those qualities, they're more um, sort of, uh, I suppose, attributed to certain demographics of the population as opposed to, uh, you know, other people that are more consensus-driven, more uh, oriented towards teamwork and getting people on board and inspiring others, right? Um, So that might be sort of a bias right there is how you define success. And it's interesting that you mentioned how um, uh, I suppose um, having a lot of men in leadership just generates more men in leadership, right? Because at least from a hiring perspective, I've seen that, for example, referrals is a very important part of getting people in companies, right? So, oh, we need a we need a general manager, or we need someone in a leadership position, or just just anyone. The first thing we're going to look at is who do we know, right? And a lot of times, who we know are people that are very similar to us. So we're going to end up hiring people that are very similar to us, which also has a gender dimension, right? So I suppose if you're hiring, if you're a leader, if you're, I suppose, you know, a, a man, and you're looking for a, a co-founder or CTO or CFO, you're going to look at the same people that are in your network that you might be very close to, that you go out for drinks occasionally with, or that are from the same university as you, which also impacts the diversity that we see in the workplace. Yeah, absolutely. I think you've hit the nail on the head there, which is the people in our networks, when people are asked for referrals or, you know, there's a referral burner scheme, even so like there's an active encouragement for us to look for referrals. And by the way, I'm a big fan of referrals for hiring great talent. But the problem is if you looked at your LinkedIn network, ask yourself how many of those people are not white men? Um, I, I started doing this when I started getting really into like, why are we just not hiring enough women? And 
I did this exercise. I looked through my LinkedIn network. And even as a woman, I was like, whoa, everybody I know in the world of supercomputing, <laughs> they're all, they're all men. <laughs> and it wasn't until I actually started actively working to network with women that I built that network. Um, we've got to remember that uh, one, there are fewer women, but also they're less likely to network because a lot of the networking, at least historically, has been done on the golf course, after hours, in the pub, and women still take the majority burden of care and responsibilities, which means that we have less, less to offer to our networking. Um, and one of the things I do with as an executive coach is I actively challenge my um, coachees with their networking. I'm like, you need to be networking. You are now representing yourself. You're representing the company you work for. This is part of your job. We've got to figure out how to fit it into your schedule. But for many of us, we've managed to really crawl our way up the corporate ladder without figuring out the networking piece because it hasn't been an organic thing that's happened, which for many of our male colleagues it has. So have a look at your network, absolutely. And which is, um, is also why I think the one place where quotas are useful, and I think quotas are a dangerous thing. Um, mm. And obviously in many countries, you have to be very careful about quotas, but I know you mentioned that at the beginning. The one place where they are helpful is when you have a minimum number of people on your shortlist from particular demographics. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to hire a minimum number of people. Some people argue that's the way forward. I think there's a lot to debate around that. And I would say I'm not the expert. But <laughs> I think if you don't have any women or people of color shortlisted, you need to go back to your drawing board and start again because there's something wrong with your hiring process either your referrals method or um, maybe the people you're reaching out to or maybe the way the job description is written. Something is wrong because there are many, many talented women out there. Women are 51% of the human race. I am pretty sure there's someone out there who could be on your shortlist and really look amazing on that shortlist. So I think that's the one place where I think that quotas can be quite powerful for us, like helping to counteract those unconscious barriers that we have and the lack of broader diverse networks that we have that can help us shift the needle a little bit makes sense makes sense i mean i love that you presented the business case for more women in leadership and and overall there's definitely a networking referral challenge that is is taking place and you kind of alluded to my next question which is that your the behaviors i suppose we've talked about the bias that exists in I suppose in, in hiring managers or in companies, but this bias also leads to behaviors, right? That um, on the workplace or in the workplace impact um, women in general, I suppose. Um, I guess my question is, how does being a woman impact uh, workplace attitudes and behaviors towards yourself? Um, uh, because we've talked about, okay, the the, very theoretical terms of like okay the bias exists but then in practice what what are the behaviors that take place um uh, w with women in the workplace i this is very very broad and i'm i hate to say it but even today um explicit sexism is still very very apparent in the workplace um i i think a, a large part of it though for many of us is that we just feel awkward and odd and different and for a lot of women in a male-dominated environment 
we aren't even aware of how much that's impacting us. I remember when I started working on getting more women into supercomputing, and it was the first time since the age of 16, I had walked into a room full of women. I put together a group. We were getting together for the first time. And I walked into a room full of women who were specialists in supercomputing for the first time since the age of 16, when I first started specializing and started studying physics and electronics and always surrounded by men. And I suddenly felt more at ease. And then something else really interesting happened. My husband, who is my biggest advocate for the work I do, he is a rock star in terms of supporting the movement for getting more women into tech, more women into supercomputing, which is where I started. And he was coming to one of these events to support me because I was this little terrified, <laughs> naive young woman. <laughs> I didn't and I, you know, he was my rock. And we were both at this big conference together where I was organizing this side meeting and we'd both been at different things in the conference. And he came to the event sooner than I did. And he, he admitted to me later that he walked into the room, felt so awkward that he walked out again and waited for me to turn up. And it was the first time in his career he'd ever experienced being the only man in the room. And I think that's what really brought it home to me. I'd been the only woman in the room for such a long time. I'd forgotten how exhausting it was. The exhaustingness comes in many different ways. Sometimes it's just that you just, you're just different and you don't even know. And that's the thing that's just pervasive all the time. You don't even know it's exhausting you until you see the other side. But I also remember early on in my career, I'd been working on this project with a group of like 10 men <laughs> because that's what we did. We had weekly meetings and I was late to the meeting and I walked in and I was wearing a dress because it was summer. I think it was probably the first time I'd worn a dress on a meeting day. Anyway, I walked into the room and they all stood up and they stood up because I was wearing a dress and they, they decided I needed that level of respect. It was well-intentioned, do not get me wrong. I'm not saying that those people were horrible humans, bad people, but you know what? I have never felt so awkward, so different, so I don't fit in. I didn't wear a dress to work for three years after that because I felt that I had to fit in. And that's exhausting. If every day you have to be something you're not to fit in and you're not even aware that you're doing it, it just reduces your ability to really thrive at work, which is one of the reasons why I work really hard with women to allow them to be themselves, be their authentic selves at work and not worry about fitting in. But life tells us to fit in. We all want to be liked. It's a survival mechanism at the end of the day. Evolution has told us be liked because then other people will look after you when the lion comes along, right? We hate sticking out. If your entire experience of the corporate world is of being different it is just simply exhausting and that's before we even go into the everyday sexism that happens uh, which sadly is very prevalent still um, things such as organizing really important meetings outside of core hours even though there's an acceptance of core hours and that people are allowed to um, do childcare responsibilities and stuff like that I've had People come and work with me who are like, I don't understand. We have core hours and yet they organize this really important meeting when I'm picking up the kids and they said I could do that and they'll make a recording of the meeting, but I need to be there. And it's just a constant conflict and it's exhausting until we get to the point where we really share all responsibilities, where you aren't accidentally asking the woman in the room 
to take notes or call the cab, we aren't going to have that proper equity of experience, which is what we really need to be getting to. That does change when you get more women in the office as you get closer to 50-50. Once you're above 40%, really, you, you kind of break down those barriers a little bit because it just you can't get away with it anymore. But below 40%, the people that are different, whatever characteristic that is, I speak as a woman because I understand that one, but whatever it is, it's exhausting for them. And they wouldn't necessarily be able to articulate it even. I think that's one of the things that's really quite depressing. If you ask 20-something women what their experience is and if their gender impacts their career, they will often say no. Women in their mid to late 30s, that there's this sudden shift where suddenly they're like, yeah, my gender is impacting my career we're blind to it for a large part of our early career, which is when it also really, really matters. Yeah, I mean, now that you pointed out, there are very weird moments. I mean, I can, I, first of all, I can relate to being the only something in the room. I mean, um, and this is a while back, but I remember living in the Netherlands for quite some time and sometimes being the only non-Dutch person in the room would be just quite, quite awkward. You know, you would, have all eyes on you mm. and and you would get very awkward questions about where you're from and what are you doing and this and that and you're thinking oh am I did I did I enter in the wrong room what's what's happening right yeah. but also when it comes to these behaviors um uh with women I suppose when it comes to things like um you know I've also noticed that that a lot of times um the the female in the group would be assigned to take notes or minutes of meetings or would end up being the one bringing like water to to a to a group meeting, or would be someone that would take care of the uh, the the admin, or making sure the laptop is connected to the screen and that sort of stuff. It's very sort of adminy work, and it's you know that how that you pointed out, and sometimes we don't see it as a as a as a man at least. I'm you know I'm I'm very absent minded to to these things, so I should change that behavior, but. We don't notice it until it's pointed out to us. It's like, oh, wait a minute. Why, you know, while while other people were having serious discussions, um, the female in the group was designed to do these very sort of, um, I don't know, I suppose admin type type tasks, I kind of feel like. I mean, yeah. yeah. And I, I think sometimes women can be our own worst enemy in this. Not all of us and not all the time. But I, I certainly am aware that early in my career, I did some of those tasks because I saw other women doing it and realized it got them brownie points. And I felt like, well, this is how I get accepted because I had felt so different. I wasn't necessarily able to articulate it in that way if you'd asked me why I was doing this, but I was like, I'll help out because that's how you're going to accept me. That's how I'm going to be liked. And when you feel different, it's even more important that you people please and that people like you. And I think that's something we don't talk about enough and that we talk about um, underrepresented groups being people pleasers. I know that a lot of the women come and work with me. They don't take action because they're worried about upsetting people because that people pleasing can be so crippling. But it starts from being the odd one in the room. It starts from being different. It starts when you're a little kid choosing maths when all the other girls are choosing music or drama or whatever it is it starts there and realizing I'm different so how do I make sure people still like me and so we can be our own worst enemies and sometimes what we need um, from our allies is to be like no no you know what I'm going to do that this week um and but still include them in other ways well let's talk about 
not just i suppose the you know the the people pleasing aspect and how that impacts us and how we try to win brownie points but the actual skills right to 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 become a leader oh. at at executive level right because i suppose it's not just by doing the admin work or taking the minutes that you go from you know maybe individual contributor to leader or from leader to to c level right um uh, in your work as a uh, as a as a leadership professional, um, having spoken to so many women in leadership roles or aspiring to be in those roles, have you seen any key skills or key, I suppose, let's say key skills, right? Like key skills, key abilities uh, that that are most common in in leaders and 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 female leadership in particular. Um, so what I would say is that these skills are not unique to women. Um, <laughs> um, what we are seeing is a shift in leadership as women are breaking into the boardroom, breaking into managerial roles, because to get there as a woman, you have to be better than your male peers because of this unconscious bias that we all have. Um, women tend to be better qualified than their male peers at any point in their career. It's a known thing. If you don't like that fact, go and read the research on it. <laughs> and again, it's it's just part of who we are as humans. That doesn't mean it's acceptable, though. Um, but what we are seeing is this shift. As more women are coming in, because they are better at leadership, there is more empathy. There is improved communication, which are two of the most important things for great leadership and great people management. Because I think a lot of what we forget as we promote people, we typically promote people from an individual contributor. They want a pay rise, so we make them a manager. And suddenly they've got people responsibilities. But they're a technical superstar. And that's insufficient. In fact, as you get promoted, what needs to happen is that you're okay being surrounded by technical superstars, technical experts who know more than you. Because that's not what you're paid for anymore. Suddenly, as a leadership superstar, you're paid for decisive decision-making that's timely, making sure you're adhering to the business needs, clear communication on what's needed, why and when, and getting buy-in on all that rather than like hiding things and just leading through the stick approach, right? We need buy-in. It's much easier to, to work that way. And executive presence. That's the true leadership package because it allows you to take all these amazing, talented people around you and make them create something amazing that's really what being a leader is about is leveraging the talent around you it isn't about you anymore it's about the people that work for you and what they can produce if as a leader you think it's all about you you've completely missed the point <laughs> your business is only as good as the talent and the talent you're only one small part of that and I think that is what we all need to be working on more executive presence communication true people management leadership beyond that technical expertise and then the final piece of the puzzle is resilience and i don't think this one is talked about enough for men or women but resilience because as you rise up the ranks you are going to get more negative feedback to the point that at some point you will reach the level in your career where the only feedback you get is the bad stuff Silence means that things are going well. And for many of us, that's really hard to deal with when we first hit it. When the only feedback you ever get is that was a that was awful, like what the heck went wrong? We cannot afford to do that again. Or heaven forbid, you're fired because that went wrong. Like, how do you emotionally deal with that? How is that not crippling? And it 
having the resilience to handle that is a very large part of like tackling being a leader because you can't afford to go from meeting A where you just found out some really awful news, something really bad happened, you were personally attacked, whatever it was, and five minutes later walk into meeting B or resume into meeting B and take that out on your team. And yet all of us have experienced a manager who walked into a meeting and we're like, whoa, what happened to them this morning, right? (laughs) We've all experienced that. You cannot afford to do that as a great leader. You You will fall flat on your face very quickly if that's your approach. Resilience is the key thing that allows you to ground yourself and not take meeting A into meeting B, not take it out on your team and still show up 100% for them. Because you know what, it's not their fault you just had a bad meeting. And even if it is, ultimately, it's your problem as the leader. I think that kind of like epitomizes what I really see great talent being at the executive level. Um, the higher up you go from being the first team leader all the way through directors up to executive team, like the more of that you're going to have to work on. And it's a gradual thing. You can't just, well, I wouldn't say you can't, there's always an opportunity to do something, but it's very hard to walk into that executive role straight out back without building that level of experience first. And it's the kind of experience you don't get from an MBA. This is experience of dealing with people, their emotions, learning how to coach your team because coaching is a large part of it. Learning how to present your ideas and innovations as opportunities instead of being the problem person. This is one of the ones I really love to talk about is be the solutions person, not the problem person. Early on in our careers, if we are high flyers, we see all the problems that nobody else is seeing. And we share that. And that gets us ahead because we're like seeing things. And by the way, if we don't, you know, we need to avoid this. What can we do? And it gets us a long way. At some point, you just become the voice in the room who is really annoying because you just come with problems. They're all yeah, you're, valid. You're the Debbie Downer, basically. You're just like, oh, this this guy again or this girl again. Yeah. More and more problems. How about bring some solutions, you know? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so I say become a solutions person instead. And just that small shift. Amazing. Well, you, you mentioned early on that, um, and I, I'm inclined to agree with this, that there's there's maybe, or maybe I'm paraphrasing this, but there's no like female leadership, specifically female leadership quality, like, like, like leadership is, I suppose, maybe universal, right? But mm-hmm. um, I would sort of wonder, like, maybe you would agree with this, but um, certain qualities are judged differently um, for a man than for a woman, right? Like, for example, let's take assertiveness, right? Like if a male leader is super assertive, then that sometimes that seems like a good thing. Like, oh, he's a strong leader. He's mm. he's taking initiative and he's being assertive, you know? Whereas if a woman is assertive, then she might be perceived as bossy or something yeah. like that, right? <laughs> like, like, oh my God, she's so bossy. Like, Whereas that behavior was exactly the same as the the male leader. Like, um, how uh, how how would you how would you navigate this if you're a if if you're a, a female leader and you happen to be maybe you you might have some assertiveness, right? Or maybe you know that's part of your character. How do you navigate that 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 double almost double standard? I think is yeah. is how how you could put it really. Well, I'm glad you mentioned double standard because that is exactly the point here. And and the reason I didn't go into this when you asked me about the qualities of female leadership is because the exact same behavior, which is what you're getting at in a man compared to a woman, it's the exact same thing. It isn't about women being any different. 
Mm. is that double standard of being judged differently. Um, and yeah, the classic is the assertive versus the aggressive um, for, for women. There is no silver bullet here. Mm. Absolutely none. Um, and there are a lot of, there, the interesting thing is there is no clear path to resolving this. We all have to find our own way. You will find coaches who tell you, stand up for yourself as a woman, just be that assertive person, become more assertive. There are others who will tell you, you know what, just just become the most liked person in the room. I always take the approach of we've got to figure out what works for you in your current situation, because you know what, you've got to feel good about turning up to work tomorrow. Now, I do absolutely want everybody to move out of their comfort zone. And sometimes moving out of the comfort zone is to stand your ground and show that your assertiveness gets results. I'm certainly not somebody who holds back. Um, I will tell you how it is, which has caused me issues. At the same time, you know, I've also learned to, as I put it with my clients, I will lovingly call them out on their own BS. I will tell them how it is, but with a whole load of love, love attached. That's my personal leadership style. And I, I actually think that's what we all need to find. We all need to find our own comfortable way to do the uncomfortable stuff, if you see what I mean. Because a lot of the time when we're being assertive, when we're doing something that's pushing somebody else's buttons, that means we get labeled in a detrimental way. It's uncomfortable for everybody, but it's also the thing that gets results. And you've got to find your own authentic way to do that and realize actually whether you're a man or a woman, you're going to upset people. And that is okay. You can't please everybody. As a woman, you may well sadly upset more people than your male peers, but there's going to be an interesting line. I found having coached many, many women in this, that there comes a tipping point when suddenly you get a whole load more respect because you did stand your ground and you get more loyal following as it were, and you actually have an easier time. But to stand your ground, you've got to find your way of doing that. That's pushing you out of your comfort zone, but still authentically you. Yeah, it makes sense. There's there's no sort of blanket approach or blanket no. solution, right? Because it's all very situational, depending on the person and the company they're in and what the workplace culture is and what the specific situation was around that assertive behavior and how it was perceived, right? Um, well, we've talked about the, the key skills but there are some also weaknesses that also keep us from, from getting to the top or to a leadership position, right? And one of those has to do with things like imposter syndrome and, and, and maybe lacking that confidence to go the extra mile, right? Um, I suppose, have you, have you come across a lot of um, female leaders that are um, wrestling with that imposter syndrome aspect? And, and what would be ways of dealing with, with imposter syndrome that, that, you've, that you've taught? Yeah, I would say actually all of the women I work with at some point have um, experienced imposter syndrome while I've been working with them. Some have come to work with me thinking they've dealt with imposterism and then having worked with us, there's another layer. And it's certainly something I've seen in myself, like imposter syndrome is a large part of who I am every day. Um, what I've learned to do and what I now help my clients do and I want the entire world to do is learn how to deal with that, deal with that sometimes debilitating self-doubt, criticism, lack of confidence that inhibits our progress. And it is incredibly prevalent um, in senior leaders because it's 
the the more the more you achieve the more you are on your own the more you think gosh am I supposed to be here I'm the only one doing this and the curious thing is I can be simultaneously completely irritated and frustrated at my lack of progress and certainly when I was in corporate <laughs> rather than running my own business and at the same time like literally with a, a microsecond apart thinking but I don't belong here right and it that's why we convince ourselves we don't have imposter syndrome anymore because I'm so frustrated and angry at my lack of progress. Um, I believe I should be here. And then at the same time, believing like, oh, but maybe, maybe they're going to figure out I shouldn't be here. Um, again, no silver bullet. One of the things I do, and actually I have a free training on this that is open to anybody. It's designed for women in tech leadership and help you understand imposter syndrome in yourself, but also in your team. Um, but anybody can do it. Um, but it's a, it's a program to help you understand how your imposter syndrome is showing up because there are actually multiple types of imposterism from being a perfectionist, the kind of person who doesn't take action or finish something or deliver something because your perfectionism gets in the way, the natural genius who doesn't do something because everything in their life has been easy. And so the fact that this is hard means that it's wrong somehow or the people that need to go and get another qualification before they do something, and that's always their answer. Um, the superman, superwoman who believes that they have to do everything by themselves and therefore don't delegate is a classic new manager issue <laughs> that's actually full of imposter syndrome because there's a reason you're not delegating. Um, and the key thing is to go through some diagnostics, which my free training takes you through to really understand how it's showing up because all of those different things, they will show up in different ways. So I get perfectionism over my own podcast <laughs> and I will procrastinate because of that. Like it's, it, But in other ways, perfectionism doesn't show up in other parts of my work now because I've dealt with it. Whereas the superwoman thing, I have to do everything by myself, really does. You need to see where it's showing up in different parts of your work and then have the correct antidote to deal with it. Like, what do you need to do to remind yourself that it doesn't have to be perfect? Well, you know what? Perfect is actually delivered on time to the required standard. Never delivered is actually the definition of not perfect because it doesn't get delivered. And sometimes we need the thing in place to remind us like, what is my antidote to this feeling I'm feeling? Like, when is it popping up and what can I do? And I really advocate that all of us, actually, irrespective of your gender, of your career stage, whatever it is, should have our own confidence toolkit. And it's tailored to us, it understands how these issues crop up and what we need to be doing to get through them. Because when we get through them, that's when the great things happen. Because a lot of the time, that lack of confidence is coming about because we're about to do something extraordinary. And our brains are wired to keep us safe, keep us stagnant, keep us where we are because the known is safe. At the end of the day, evolution said, stay here in this cave where there are no tigers to eat you. <laughs> and so our brain is wired to keep the status quo. In modern life, the status quo means you're not going anywhere. And as soon as you start realizing that uncomfortable and lack of confidence means something extraordinary is on the horizon, Suddenly you can start saying, okay, I need to deal with this and work through this and take action because something great is on the other side. Yeah, it's only like that that you grow as a person, right? Not just staying with what you know and the tasks yeah. or responsibilities that you're comfortable with, but 
you know, when you feel that itch of like, oh, am I good enough or am I confident enough or or skilled enough? Well, you know, there's only one way to find out. And that's by giving that task or that responsibility a try. Yeah. Our confidence is really frustrating in that it shows up after we need it. (laughs) And I will say this to people, you don't get confidence from sitting there wishing you had confidence. You get confidence by taking that action that you want the confidence for. And suddenly one day you'll realize that it's just normalized for you. And it's like, oh, why didn't I do that five years ago? Now, last two questions, uh, Tony, and I wanted to bring it back a little bit to to the recruiting side of things and getting more women in, in leadership roles. And we touched upon this early on, so no need to go too into detail, but I wanted to come back to, to gender bias. And I think this, this may or may not be some of your, you know, the area that you're currently working on, but when it comes to gender bias in the interview, in an interview process, right? When you're interviewing candidates and you happen to be interviewing female leaders or something along those lines, um, what would be sort of the bias that creeps in during this interview process and how do you make sure you, you you remove it, right? Because ultimately it's up to also hiring managers and and maybe recruiters or heads of people to clean up their act and improve yeah. their 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 processes in that sense. So there again, there's no one size fits all here. I wish there was, but if this was an easy problem to solve, it would be solved already because there were enough of us <laughs> out sense. there who were very angry about it. Um What I would say is the first point of call is to do a thorough diagnostic. If you are a decent sized company that's done a decent amount of recruiting, have a look at your historical data and see where your pipeline of recruitment is leaking. So are you getting enough applicants, enough referrals? What's your gender distribution in those? What's your ethnicity distribution in those? Whatever thing you're looking at to see if you're doing okay on. Um, The next stage, like who's getting shortlisted? What's the gender distribution? Are you, le- are you suddenly going from like 50-50 to 20-80? If that's the case, there's something wrong with your shortlisting process, I would argue. Some people would argue there's something wrong with the quality of candidates, at which point you need to go all the way back to your actually looking at how you've written your job description. You can have a look at that too. Um, there is a lot of stuff out there on writing uh, more female-friendly job descriptions, more culturally-friendly job descriptions. It has a big impact, so don't dismiss this. Remember that diversity dividend, it's worth the effort. Um, again, like once you got through the shortlist, go have a look at the next one. Who gets around to, who gets through to interview? Who gets through to the final interviews? You know, where is your pipeline leaking? That's your first point of call to look at. That's your easy win. If at some point in that pipeline, you're suddenly losing a whole load of female candidates and you've got enough data, it's not always the same team or something like that. There's something wrong with your process. Um tackling each individual stage really requires you to look at like well why are people not progressing is it our interview questions is it the unconscious bias of a very real thing by the way that we should not be dismissing (laughs) in the recruiters in the in the hiring managers in the panel we all have it what's going on what are you doing to compensate for it because you can't just get rid of unconscious bias you can't ignore it you have to compensate for it uh, one of the things that um, orchestras do, which is kind of hard to do in the corporate world, but I, I challenge us all to think about this, is they have moved to blind auditions where the musician will play behind a screen. 
when they moved to that, I think it was started with the London Symphony Orchestra, but I could be very mistaken. Um, whoever started this, they suddenly went from something like 20% of the people being um, appointed to the orchestra of female to over 60. It's like, wow. <laughs> Just by making it a blind audition, because at the end of the day, what mattered there was the music, right? And that tells you the power of that um, visual impact, like the unconscious bias we have from seeing somebody in front of us. So ask yourself, what really matters? What is it that's important? What's the quality we're really looking for? And figure out how to measure that, right? A lot of the time when we focus on things like cultural fit, which don't get me wrong, are important. You do not want somebody toxic in your organization. But cultural fit will tend to also be, do I like them? And we tend to like people that look and behave like us. That's not cultural fit. Cultural fit is, are they going to be a good amplification to this organization? Every single person joining or leaving changes your culture, except that. And then ask yourself, are they going to be a great addition instead of, did they look and feel like us? That's a much better approach to that. I, we could talk about this one all day, and I am definitely not an expert in this. I did a, a load of work um, about a decade ago on this. But uh, I think this is an area that really needs a good a lot a look of work. But start with that diagnosis piece, absolutely. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, it's something very interesting that you that you mentioned there. It's like really looking at our interview processes and thinking, okay, you know, how are we assessing these candidates, and and what's sort of blocking us from hiring more at each stage, right? Now, and then, how can companies attract more female employees? Um, because I'm sure maybe, you know, from the discussions you've had with female leaders, there's some companies that that a lot of people apply to and a lot of females may apply to. And then there's other companies where I suppose, you know, either for for various reasons, women might think, oh, that's probably maybe not a place I'd like to apply to maybe by checking their glass door reviews or mm. by looking at, let's say, their their the representation in their leadership. Right. So what are ways that companies can sort of use to improve or attract more female employees? I would definitely say this is something everybody needs to be looking at. So I'm glad you brought it up because if you do have a female executive, they are a priceless commodity because it is so hard to get hired as a female executive, as a female leader, even as a female manager. They are valuable. <laughs> a lot of my clients get headhunted. I've been headhunted multiple times because we once you get to a certain point you were incredibly valuable so yeah if you care about the diversity dividend you want to reap that reward you do need to be looking at this so I'm really glad you asked um the obvious stuff is deal with your toxicity head on all companies at some point have a toxic employee or three or five or you know all of them toxicity doesn't have to be accepted but it is enabled I've worked places where, you know, one person was sufficient to um, basically change the entire culture to a very toxic culture. Then in a different organization, I happen to also know that individual. And you know what? No, it wasn't accepted within a month. They changed their behavior. And that's really telling. Like toxicity is enabled. So make sure that you're not enabling, even if it feels uncomfortable to you. If you're in charge and there's toxicity, believe me, you're enabling it in some way. 
that's the number one. I've seen so many women leave. They've put up with a lot of other things like meetings out of hours, not childcare friendly, all the classic things we're told to worry about. They will leave because of toxicity. Um, and that, by the way, will improve your retention and your ideation and all the other things across your entire workforce, not just your women. So pay attention. Um, and then, yeah, the classic things such as family friendly, like are, you, are people able to go and do like childcare things? Are they able to go and take their kid to the doctor without having to organize special cover? At the end of the day, unless somebody is stacking shelves in a warehouse or a supermarket, it's quite likely that there is flexibility about the hours they work. So allow that flexibility. Make sure that there's an acceptance of, you know, what these people need to be in this meeting. And just because it's convenient for two people who are very influential, but nobody else can make it doesn't mean it should happen. Uh, I've known so many women who are like, I... I really wanted to attend that meeting, but it's a choice between that and going to my kid's recital. And that happens once a year. And honestly, that is not a choice I want to make. Your kid's recital once a year only happens for a very short amount of time and then it's gone. <laughs> your career is there for the rest of your life. Of course, actually all of us, I know that men, when they get this choice also will choose that because you know what, it's important. It only happens once or twice. Family-friendly policies are a big one. Flexible working. With COVID, we've all had to adapt to that. There is no one-size-fits-all. I'm hearing a lot of talk of, you must go back to the office, or everybody, everybody should work from home forever. There is no one-size-fits-all. Telling people how they work best is absolute nonsense. The only person who knows how they work best is themselves. I know, for example, I am useless in an office because I am such an introvert. I need <laughs> I need a good portion of my day by myself, even though I'm a good chatter. Um, and so the idea of going into an office ever again is like horrendous for me. I have clients who they cannot wait to get back to the office. There is no right or wrong. The wrong is dictating to everybody else. And I think it's that leading with empathy is what we all need to be doing. If you really want to recruit and retain a diverse workforce, be empathetic, really listen to what your workforce needs instead of dictating and amazing things will happen. No, I fully agree with that. And especially the, I think the, at least for me personally, the biggest factor was that toxic workplace factor that you mentioned, because mm. that's just, oh, that's just the worst when you, you know, you have a colleague or, or a, uh, a manager, and for some reason, or in some way, they're toxic. And, you know, you have to put up with things like bullying, or, or, or anything along those lines. That's just, oof, that's just the worst. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times, like a lot of times, it's like top performers that, you know, the, you know, they're doing so well that they, you know, the, the power sort of gets to their head. And, for managers, it's like tough to fire the top performer, right? So then it's like that dilemma of what are you going to do with this person? So it's it's just it's just yeah. horrendous. That one's actually an interesting one. I'm just going to dip in there because I, a lot of us struggle with that one. Like I've got this star performer, but they are toxic and I know it. And that's part of the enablement piece I was talking about. The interesting thing is, is when people actually measure the performance, your team IQ is hugely damaged. And as I mentioned earlier, team IQ always outperforms individual IQ. 
But a lot of the time, if we've got one star performer who's toxic, we've never seen the potential of the team IQ because your team IQ is bottomed out. The only you've got is that star performer. When you actually tackle that toxicity head on, create a properly diverse and inclusive team that listens, your team IQ is going to skyrocket. And suddenly that one linchpin person who is so important that you can't possibly challenge them on their behavior is actually completely replaceable. And I, I've seen this happen so many times when it's finally tackled and they're like, oh, wow, <laughs> like this is what's possible, but it's having the confidence to take that step. But it happens time and time again. Nobody is irreplaceable. At the end of the day, as a great leader, you should know that part of what you need to be creating is a team that means that if somebody leaves, you're all okay. And if you have got one person in that position of they're irreplaceable, you've necessarily failed as a manager, actually. Absolutely. Fully agree with that, Tony. Well, finally, for more information about yourself and what you do, where, where can we find out more information, Tony? You can connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm at Tony Collis on LinkedIn. That's T-O-N-I-C-O-L-L-I-S. And I also have a website, which is TonyCollis.com. Um, and that free training I mentioned, um, if people are interested in it, go to tonycollis.com forward slash DTSD for a ditch the self-doubt. And you can get started immediately on that free training. I hope that's helpful to somebody out there. Of course. And for the listeners here, I'll add the links in the episode description. Tony, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this conversation with you. Uh, tons of little, you know, nuggets of information and learnings there. So thank you so much. It was my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. It was fun speaking with Tony. You can find her links in the episode description. If you like this episode, then please give us a like or follow. Thanks again and stay safe.